Good morning. Luke 2, 22, 25 through 38. And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Master, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. And his father and his mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel, and for a sign that is opposed, and a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin, and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. The word of the Lord. Waiting is uncomfortable, isn't it? And generally speaking, we try to avoid it. Whether it's waiting for your phone to finish updating or something more serious like waiting for a life-altering decision to be made, we find it uncomfortable, and so we seek to avoid it. That's why we come out with all kinds of incredible technological advances and all kinds of new apps designed to reduce our wait times. It's why we have millions upon millions of hours of entertainment accessible at our fingertips so we may distract ourselves from the discomfort. But no matter how good our apps get, or how many hours of stranger things we binge, we can't quite escape the discomfort. But God, in His Word, invites us this morning to have a very different relationship to waiting. God, this morning, would invite us to embrace the discomfort 
especially if you are a Christian, if you are a follower of Jesus. And let me be clear, I do not make the assumption that everyone here is a Christian. If you know that you are not, you're very welcome. We're glad that you're here. But if you are, you have been called into a life of waiting. It's been this way from the beginning. God's people have always waited. Abraham, the very patriarch of our faith, waited decades for his miracle son Isaac to be born. The people of Israel waited over 400 years enslaved in Egypt before they were rescued. They waited 40 years in the wilderness before entering the promised land. And for hundreds and hundreds of years, God's people groaned and waited, longing for the Messiah to come, God's anointed King who would set them free and make right everything that had gone wrong. But even after the Messiah came, even after the life, death, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, we still are waiting. God's people are waiting for the Messiah to come again, to bring the new heavens and new earth, to remake all things. God's people are a people who wait. And that's exactly what we remember at this time of year, in the season of Advent. If you're unfamiliar, Advent is the time in the church calendar leading up to Christmas. And during the season of Advent, we at Central West End Church have been in this sermon series called Waiting on the King. And this morning, our passage shows us two of God's people, a man and a woman, a, a kind of mirror image of one another, who parallel, who complement one another. And these two people show us what it looks like for the people of God to wait. And we need to see this. We need to see what Simeon and Anna have to show us because, and this is the big thing I want you to walk away with. If you don't hear anything else I say today, I want you to hear this. You can only receive what you've been waiting for. You can only receive that which you've been waiting for. So that's the big idea. I want to explore that big idea by looking at our two waiters. We're going to look at Simeon, and we're going to look at Anna. First, let's take a look at Simeon. Who is Simeon? Well, we're not actually told very much about who Simeon is. We don't know get much of his life story, but what we are told is that he is righteous and devout, meaning we're meant to admire him and seek to emulate him even. And that phrase, righteous and devout, how, how is he righteous and devout? Well, we're, it's explained in the next phrase, he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. Now that's a really easy phrase for us to just kind of zip right by and we just completely miss it. But that is telling us a lot. First and foremost, it's telling us that Simeon is waiting. Now that's a really passive word in English, right? Waiting is just, you're letting the time go by. But in the Greek, it's far more active. This word we translate waiting in English, in the Greek, it's this word. Prosdekamai. It's, it's a good word, isn't it? Prosdekamai. And I think a better way of explaining what this word means is maybe to say it this way. 
expecting to receive. It's, a, it's attuned. It's, it's expectant. There's a level of trust and hope in this word. I think the best illustration that I have to show you, to really convey what prosdecami means is this. That's the face of prosdecami. Right? I mean, look at that. You don't have to be a dog person to know what that face is telling you. Right? He knows there's a treat coming. And he's looking at the one who has the treat. And it's like, I'm ready to get it. Whenever you're ready to give it, I'm here. Right? You see the trust? The expectation? That's prosdecami. That is the life that Simeon has been leading for many, many years. But what has he been waiting for? Well, we're told the consolation of Israel. Again, easy to just right by it. But that is a reference, a direct reference, to the many promises that God made through his prophets to save his people. That one day God would send an anointed king, the Messiah, And he would come and rescue his people. He would save them, conquering all of their worst enemies and set right everything that had gone wrong and bring about restoration. And this has been, people have been waiting for this for hundreds and hundreds of years. But here's the thing. Not everyone was waiting like Simeon. Everyone knew if you were an Israelite at this time in history, you couldn't help but know the prophecies. You would know of the prophecies from Isaiah and Ezekiel. You would know that the prophet Daniel had said, here's the number of the years until this anointed king comes. And if you did the math, you knew, okay, this is the time in history when the Messiah is supposed to come. But not everyone waited. You see, there were these different groups. One group would have been the Sadducees. You guys kind of heard of them, right? They were kind of the wealthy political elite of their day. And in their thinking, you know, whether or not this Messiah actually shows up, life under Roman occupation is hard. And the ones who have the power to make our life better or worse are the Romans. So what they did was they sought to curry favor with Roman powers. They did this by compromising morally, theologically. They ignored and did away with those troublesome biblical doctrines that would get in the way of their ability to be good with Rome. You see, they weren't expecting to receive what God had promised to give. They were waiting on Rome. But then way over here on the other end of the political spectrum, we had another group the zealots. The zealots were kind of like the radical right-wing Jewish uh, nationalists of this day, right? They were not interested in cozying up to Rome. Rather, they were interested in bringing the system down. They were taking up arms. They were committing acts of what were considered terrorism. They were staging rebellions to take down Rome. And they were interested in a Messiah. And for them, any Messiah would do. 
we have historical documents that say there were actually a number of people that stood up at this time in history and said, I'm the Messiah, and, and they would form a little group of rebels, and they'd try to stage a rebellion, and they always lost. But you see, they weren't waiting to receive what God had promised to give. They had, basic, had the expectation God helps those who help themselves. Another group would have been the Essenes. The Essenes were an early, like, monastic group. They would form these little, small communities and go way out into the desert, away from everybody else, and they'd live these, lead these highly aesthetic lives. That's a mouthful. Lead these highly aesthetic lives, where they do lots of fasting and praying. And we, we owe the Essenes a great deal of gratitude because they did some amazing work in preserving and copying God's Word. But like any escapist movement, they had withdrawn from what God had called them to, to be a light to the nations. And they had formed their little holy huddle with people who were like-minded, and they weren't living a life expecting to receive what God had promised to give. They were just trying to find a way to avoid the discomfort of the weight. The last group we'll mention is the Pharisees. You guys know about the Pharisees, right? The Pharisees weren't morally compromised or theologically compromised like the Sadducees. They weren't taking up arms like the Zealots, and they weren't escaping from the world like the Essenes, but they were the spiritual moral leaders of their day. And they believed in the promises of God to send His Messiah, but in their estimation, okay, God had promised to send this Messiah, but the Messiah is not going to come until we clean up our acts morally. And so they got real busy being moral. They came up with even extra rules to add on to God's law to make sure they were being, they were, they were hitting the nail on the head, right? God's law says, you shall keep the Sabbath holy, right? Don't work. So they laid out a whole group of rules about, okay, this is what counts as work, and this is what doesn't. They were like meticulously about obeying all of the ceremonial laws. Jesus said they would tithe their garden herbs, right? But in hyper-fixating on the letter of the law, they completely missed the heart of the law, which is love. And what that actually shows is they were not expecting to receive what God had promised to give. They were expecting a reward for their good behavior, And what's the result of all this? All of these people who were not actually waiting for what God had promised to give, they weren't actually expecting to receive. Well, Simeon lays it out, and we see this in the life of Jesus. Simeon tells Mary in this prophecy, like, look, your baby's going to shake things up. People on top are going to come down. People on the bottom are going to come up. And he's going to be opposed. And Jesus was. Most people in Israel did not accept Jesus for who he is and what he came to do because, as he says next, that image of a sword, meaning that Jesus, who he is, what he does, cuts through what's on the outside to what's going on on the inside. And what did he expose? That most people were not expecting to receive what God had promised to give. They were waiting for something else. And so they rejected him. As the gospel writer John says, he came to his own and his own did not receive him. 
But Simeon did. On that day in the temple, Simeon, who had lived a very long life of prosdecami, saw Jesus. Now look, lots of eyes passed over that baby in the temple, but Simeon saw him and received him for who he was. That's Simeon. What about Anna? What does Anna have to tell us? Well, we find we're introduced to Anna as a prophetess. Now, that's kind of a, what that does. It's a really shorthand way of kind of paralleling Anna to Simeon, right? We see Simeon doing these prophety things, make, pronouncing a prophecy, right? And then we're just told, okay, Anna's a prophetess. So, what we're meant to do is draw a parallel. Oh, they're the same kind of person, right? They're the same kind of person. That, and we're meant to assume, okay, Anna is waiting in the same manner that Simeon is waiting. And like Simeon, she's also very, very old, right? We're told she is well advanced in years. And we, and we get a little bit of her backstory. We find out that way back when she was of marrying age, uh, which at this time in history was about right, when a woman reached the, where she could have children, so somewhere between 12 to 14, it was common for them to get married. So she did. And she lives with her husband for seven years. And then he dies. Now, losing a spouse at any age in any culture is devastating. It's, it's traumatic. It's tragic. To lose a spouse when you're that young, I mean, she was po- possibly under the age of 20. To lose a spouse at that age would have been just completely devastating. Moreover, she lives in a patriarchal culture, a culture that, is, that says a woman's security financially, physically, socially is always connected to a man, either her father, her husband, or a son. And the text presumes she's childless. So, in her culture's eyes, she is without resource and she's without purpose. Because in a patriarchal culture, a woman's only purpose in life is to produce children. So she has neither husband nor children, so she is without resource and without purpose in the world. And so what would have been the normal assumption, and we have writings from rabbis at this time that basically said the same thing, hey, what what would make sense is, Anna, you're young, you're pretty, go get another husband. There's bound to be a man that'll marry you. Come on, you're, get out there and find that, that next guy. But that's not how Anna's introduced to us, is it? Anna kind of swims upstream of our expectations because the first thing we find out about Anna is not, oh, Anna's this sad, tragic case. Anna's this depressing old lady who hangs out in the temple. No, the first thing we find out about Anna is she's a prophetess. She's a spokesperson for Yahweh. And we're, the next thing we're told about her is that she has a line in God's people. She belongs to God's beloved. 
And despite the cultural expectations and even maybe the own expectations of her own heart that would, that would seek to filter everything in her life through her tragedy, instead, Anna doesn't go out and frenetically look for a husband to have children. She lives out her days in the presence of the Lord. She recognizes that her primary security doesn't come from a man, it comes from God's provision for her. And he does. She's an octogenarian. She's in her 80s. God has been providing for her for decades. Anna recognizes that her primary purpose in life as a woman is not bound up in her ability to have children. Her primary purpose in life is to be a worshiper of Yahweh. Anna, despite what her tragedy might say, despite what her culture says, despite what even maybe she, the internal pressures that she feels, Anna's identity is rooted and secure in who she is before God. Where does that come from? Well, it's pretty simple. She worships. And what you worship shapes who you think you are. You're all worshiping something. We all do. Whether you're religious or not, whether you, think, whether you consider yourself a Christian or not, we all worship something. Or to use the language of Simeon, something is our master. You serve something. You're looking to something to give you a sense of who am I? What's my purpose in the world? What, what creates my sense of security? That's the thing you worship. And so you, what Anna's showing us is that what you wait for is what you worship. What you wait for is what you worship. And so the question I would ask you this morning, what or who are you waiting for? And can it really deliver on what it promises to give? Now, it would be really, really easy for me to just stop there and just say, all right, Christians, let's go out there and be more like Simeon. Let's be more like Anna. Let's, you know, worship God with our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and let's prosdecami, right? Let's go, let's go lead lives that look more like them. And that probably wouldn't change a single person in this room. How did they do this? How did Simeon and Anna live long, long lives in the, that very, very uncomfortable posture of prosdecami? just waiting for God to give what He promised to receive and not getting a timeline. How did they, do, how did they lead lives that were formed by worship of God that weren't, that weren't completely morphed and dis, or, uh, disordered by the narratives of their culture or the narratives of their own tragedies? How, how did they do that? Well, we're actually told. Explicitly in the case of Simeon and very implicitly in the case of Anna. The Holy Spirit. This, we're told that Simeon had the Holy Spirit. What empowered Simeon and Anna's life was the power and the presence of God. So if you want to lead a life like Simeon or Anna, you need the Holy Spirit. And good news, friends. That baby that Simeon saw and Anna celebrated, grew up to be a man, 
far, far more righteous and devout than Simeon or Anna could ever be. And that life of devoted righteousness led him to the cross. And on the cross, Jesus took, or Jesus did what God had promised to do. He took down our greatest enemies, sin and death and evil. And he saved us. And then he waited under the power of death for three days before rising up in victory. And then he waited another 40 days with his disciples until he ascended to heaven. And from there, what did he do? He poured out his Spirit on us, his people, so that now the Spirit is not just on us, he's in us. If you claim the name of Jesus, the power and presence of God lives inside of you. You have the resources that Simeon and Anna had. And more than that, do you know what Jesus is doing right now? He is sitting at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and He's waiting, waiting for the day and the hour that the Father has appointed to come back and make good on the promise He's made to renew all things. So you and I are not waiting alone. As he says in Matthew chapter 8, he is with us always to the end of the age. So friends, let me ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you worshiping? Does it have the power to deliver on the promise it has made to you? Jesus has never broken a promise. And if you do claim, if you do believe in those promises, are you expecting to receive them? He's promised that he's with you now. Do you expect to see that today? Jesus promised that the very gates of hell would not prevail against the advancement of his church. Do you expect to receive that today? If you're like me, it's probably yes, sometimes no. Thank God he's given us his spirit. You can only receive what you're waiting for. So let's wait on our Lord together now. Let me pray. Father, you've made promises and you've never broken a promise. Empower us now, Holy Spirit, to receive and believe those promises that we would live lives of prosdecami, eager, expectant, patient, and trusting that you are going to do what you've said you're going to do, not because of some of our manipulation of you, but simply because of who you are. Thank you. We love you, and thank you that you loved us first. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.